I've entitled the message today, The Power of the Gospel. Uh, if this is your first time with us or first time in a while, uh, especially if you're online with us, um, we've been journeying through the book of Acts since uh, summertime last year. And as we're going through the book of Acts, we are journeying through it in these mini series. We're taking sections of scripture based on the themes of what is happening in those passages. And we are uh, going verse by verse through the scriptures to preach and teach through them. Now, we took a break through the book of Acts right when we began Advent towards the end of November. And then at the beginning of this year, after we got through with Christmas, we had our prayer service on that first Sunday. And then that second Sunday, last Sunday, Dr. West was with us preaching from Isaiah 6. So today, we begin a brand new mini-series. We begin the mini-series entitled, The Gospel Advances. And you're going to see why that is the case. We're going to see how after the stoning of Stephen that took place right at the end of chapter 7, the persecution that intensifies, the church scatters, but still the gospel advances. And so today we're going to see just how powerful the gospel truly is. So we'll be in chapter 8, verses 1 through 25 this morning. I encourage you, if you would, let's stand together, together to honor the reading of God's word. The words will also be on the screen. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried and made great lamentation over, buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there much joy was in the city. But, then was, but there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women." Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus." Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon had saw that the Spirit was given through the laying of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought that you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither, nor, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of the wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are of gall and of bitterness in the bond of iniquity. 
And Simon answered, pray for me that the Lord may have not that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Almighty God, Lord, we again thank you for the time that we've had this morning thus far to praise your name. And Lord, now as we transition to this time of the word being proclaimed, I pray that you would be with me as I proclaim the word. Lord, I pray that this would be nothing of myself, Lord, that you would speak, that you would make clear the things you want spoken. Lord, speak to our hearts now, Lord. Draw us to repentance. Draw us to confession. Draw us to the place of moving forward in something you're calling us to do. Whatever it may be, Lord, we pray and ask right now, Father, that you would have your way in us, O God. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Excuse me. All right, for our passage today, we are going to see how the gospel advances at all costs because of its power, despite opposition or persecution. So if you're taking notes, I pray that you are. Here's the first thing that you can put down. Number one, the gospel brings opposition. The gospel brings opposition. <clears throat> Looking again at verse one, Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. As a reminder, as I said there at the beginning, when we concluded before Christmas time, we saw that Stephen is murdered for proclaiming the gospel. He is literally stoned to death. And while that is taking place, people are dropping their garments at the feet of Saul as Saul looks on. And here at the beginning, we actually ended with that first part of verse 8 when we finished that, that mini-series before, Acts, uh, Faith Persecuted. We ended it there, and we saw that Saul approved of his execution. We see that because of persecution against the church, against those who are proclaiming the gospel, they are dispersed. They are going out and about. It says throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, and the apostles were not with them. They, the church is just scattered. They're gone in the midst of facing persecution. Now it says there in verse 2 that devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Devout men appeared, uh, excuse me, buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. We see that these devout men, they go and they bury him and they're saddened. And they're, they're having this moment of, of lamenting over the fact that Stephen is gone. And you might have to say, well, why is that? Well, we remember, this one's not on the screen, but just listen as I read it to you. Back from Acts chapter 6, verse 5, it said... When they said these things, it pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Stephen was a man of faith. He was full of the Holy Spirit. He was one that was ready, willing, able to go and proclaim the gospel. And doing that got him killed. So they are lamenting over the fact that this devout, faithful man that they love and care for, their friend, is now no longer with them. His dear saint has been murdered for his faith. The gospel brings opposition. Verse 3 tells us, But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. 
we see the hatred of Saul here for the church. Now we know from reading the scriptures, we know from what we're going to see in a couple of weeks that Saul drastically is going to be changed by the power of God. And he's going to use mightily to write the majority of the New Testament moving forward. We're going to see incredible things happen, but right here in this moment, we see just how much he hates the church, how much he hates the message of the gospel. It says that he would take men and women and commit them to prison. If they were a Christ follower, they were thrown into prison. Great persecution is still very much alive at this point, and it will continue to be. See, that's the point of the gospel bringing forth opposition. The gospel brings opposition because the message of the gospel is the truth of God. It is the purpose. That is why gospel translates as good news. It is the good news for any who would repent and believe. But that's one of the big points there. Repentance is something that nobody wants to hear. Nobody wants to do. Nobody wants to be told that you have to repent of your sin. Although that is very clear what God tells us in the gospel, in his word. He tells us very clearly the whole purpose of Jesus' coming is to take the place of our sinful selves. And therefore, in order to have a perfect relationship with God, one must confess his, with his mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in his heart that God resurrected him from the grave. But there's an aspect of repentance that has to come even before that. We must repent of our sin. And so when we're living a life that is holy and pleasing to God, and we're going about in our daily life, and we're proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel to lost friends, family, neighbors, coworkers, whomever that is around us, it brings opposition. You see, a lot of people think that, that being a Christian means that you've got to follow a bunch of rules and all this stuff, and you've got to be a goody two-shoes. No, 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 no. The beauty of being a Christian, the beauty of the gospel, is that because I am jacked up and I am a sinful person, God still loved me enough to provide the way of eternal life with him. Who am I that he would do this for me? It is because of this that I am drawn to repentance, to say, God, I am sinful. I have sinned against you. Therefore, I must confess your name, Jesus. I repent of these sins. I need you to redeem me. And then we walk in obedience, the goody two-shoes. You try to live a life that is holy and pleasing to God, but we all fall short of it daily, and that's the beauty of the gospel. The grace and the mercy is new every day. See, the truth of God's word, the biblical worldview, it's the exact opposite of everything we see in the culture today. It's the exact opposite. We were talking about this a little bit yesterday at Brotherhood. We were talking about just the discipline of marriage of a godly man. And we talked about the reality that everything that God has written out in his word in scripture of what a marriage is supposed to be, the world thinks it's a joke. The world wants nothing to do with it. The world thinks that's just a bunch of, of, of old book that's been used for centuries that people still follow. When the reality is it's the living word of God by which we should have as the primary focus of our life leading us and directing us as we follow God. So naturally, if the world says this, the gospel says this, and they're two different things, there's going to be opposition that comes with it. The gospel brings opposition. Number two, the gospel advances despite opposition. 
The gospel advances despite opposition. Look at verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. We see that despite the fact of the persecution that has happened, the murdering of Stephen, the persecution that intensifies, the church still does what God told them to do. As Jesus was about to ascend, he told them that you will be my witnesses in Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. He told them what they were going to do. And we see that these believers take it to heart. Even though they face the persecution, even though they scatter, they take the message with them. I think that's a solid reminder for us. I think it's a solid reminder for us that despite whatever opposition that we may face, that we would still preach or proclaim, demonstrate the good news of the gospel. Because that is what Jesus has commissioned us to do. To boldly proclaim the gospel despite what may come. Now, you know, the, I'm going to say it in quotation marks, the easy thing for us, the easy thing for us would be to keep our mouth shut. The easy thing for us would be to say, I'm not going to go and do that. I'm not going to do that. On an earthly side, it would be the easiest thing possible for us because we wouldn't have to face opposition. We wouldn't have people feel uncomfortable getting into a conversation with us. We wouldn't have fear and doubt and worry about if I say this, what is so-and-so going to think of me? If I say this, what is so-and-so at my job going to do? Are they going to report me? Am I going to lose my job because of this? Am I going to face fill in the blank? Whatever it may be. It would be easy for us to just keep our mouths shut and just go through life until we die. And you can do that. But if we do that, we are directly sinning against God. Because he has made it very, very clear to us that we redeem people who don't deserve the grace and mercy that we've been given. We have been given a commission. We haven't been given a suggestion. We haven't been given an option. We've been given a direct commission from the God of the universe to go and make disciples of all nations. And let me just interject something with that right there. That doesn't just mean go and make converts. That doesn't just mean go and share our faith. Hopefully they come to faith. We pat them on the back and say, you go out and you do this. No, no, no. Go and make disciples of all nations. Disciples. As a person comes to faith, help them to grow and walk and mature in their faith, in their sanctification. The easy thing would be for us to do that. That would be a direct sin against God to say, I'm not doing anything. I'm not getting into arguments with people. I'm not gonna, I'm just gonna give into my fear. I'm just gonna sit back on the sidelines and wait. If we do that, we will die as a church and the gospel message will continue to fade out from our community, from our city. We desperately need to see the reality that God has called us to be commissioned to share the glory of his name. And what he's done. Verse 5 tells us Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed them the Christ. Luke gives us a specific description of what Philip does as he goes down there to Samaria. He goes down there specifically to proclaim the gospel to them. Now, if you recall, when I read a moment ago about Stephen, and about him being chosen as one of those seven, very directly, as soon as Stephen's name is there, Philip is right behind him. Philip is one of those seven that are chosen to serve. He's not an apostle, but he's one of those that are chosen to serve. Specifically, the Hellenistic widows at the time, 
that needed help during that time. They were widows. They were in need. But also, he's a devout follower of Jesus, just like Stephen was. And it's interesting to note that as Philip is going down to Samaria, he's literally following Jesus' teaching. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. In the face of the persecution, the gospel facing the persecution and opposition, it still advances because Philip goes to scatter away from the persecution that's coming. It follows God's plan to Samaria. Follows God's plan directly to Samaria. Now the Samaritan people, they were essentially half Jews and they pretty much did not get along with the Jewish people. So this is kind of some unchartered, not so friendly water that he's going into. Samaria is a place, if you remember from John 4, remember the story of Jesus and the woman at the well? That was in Samaria. It was it's this point where it's like, uh, Jesus, the disciples at that point, they're like, can we go around? Can we not go through Samaria? Like, there's some issues there. And Jesus is like, no, I'm going to face this head on. We're going into here. And he finds a Samaritan woman there at the well. And we know from the story of what takes place there. Verse 6 tells us, The crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him, they saw the signs that he did. So all the people of Samaria that are gathered around, Philip is there and he's preaching Christ. He's telling them about the good news of the gospel. And as he's doing so, they are all sitting there with one accord. All united in that sense at one time together to hear and see what's being done. Verse seven tells us, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. We see there that Philip is healing these people. He's proclaimed the gospel and he's demonstrating the gospel by its power. People are being healed of unclean spirits. An amazing thing has happened in Samaria. And then what I think is one of the most beautiful little pieces of Scripture in the Bible is found in Acts chapter 8, verse 8. It says, so there was much joy in that city. There was much joy in that city. I believe that this example is one that we must take note of. We must take note of it because despite the issues of the past between the Jews and the Samaritans, Philip goes in and they go and proclaim the gospel and the people still listen. Despite the fact that this man is standing before them and they would want nothing to do with hearing anything they would have to say because of the past. Because of any issue they may have, God still providentially allows for the gospel to be proclaimed and the people hear it and it captures their attention. And they're hooked. And they're listening. And the gospel advances despite the opposition. They sit and they witness what he does. They hear what he says. And they were hooked on every single word. I think it's easy for us to fall sometimes into the trap of telling ourselves that because of a past experience, because of a past past reputation, because of past fears, past experiences, whatever it may be, we may think that the gospel is maybe too offensive to the people that we need to tell it to, 
or we just feel like we can't proclaim it because we give in to fear, because we can't say the words that need to be said. We're fearful that we'll mess up. Although the entire time, God has made it clear to us that he is with us and he will give us the words to speak because of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. We feel that it's pointless sometimes. But let me tell you this, church. The gospel has power. The gospel has power. It has the power to transform lives despite the opposition that may come. And we must remember that it is the power of God that is working in us to proclaim the truth of the gospel that we are called by God Almighty to do. So despite the opposition that you may face, that I may face, the fear that you may have regarding sharing your faith, remember that God has called us to this work. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He will use you and I despite ourselves. I think about Moses. Moses who had a problem with speech. And yet God used him to lead the nation of Israel through exile from from Egypt to to get away. The exodus, the great exodus to get away. I didn't mean to say exile, excuse me. The great exodus. He used him mightily to lead. Moses, when God is talking to him, Moses is like, me? Me. And yet God uses him in a powerful way. So for you, if you're listening and you're saying, Me? I can't do that. You're right. You can't do that in your own strength. But you and I can do that in the power of God that indwells us to boldly proclaim the gospel. Because the gospel has the power to advance. And it advances despite opposition. Thirdly, the gospel transforms. The gospel transforms. We're going to see in verses 9 through 11 something take place. Look at number 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. So he's using his magic to confuse the people. They're all hook, line, and sinker. They're listening to him. They're like, man, this is a guy that he's got it all together. Verse 10 tells us they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. The whole town was fooled by him. Everyone, the least to the greatest, every single one of them, they were hooked on his demonstrations and what he would say. They even said that he was of God and great. Obviously, there's a problem there, right? There's obviously a problem. First off, we can recall how God feels about that type of thing. You may recall from about a little over halfway through our journey in Leviticus last year. In chapter 19, verse 26, it says, You shall not eat of any flesh with blood in it. You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. Again, you shall not eat any flesh with blood in it. You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. That was Leviticus 19, 26. God makes it clear you don't do those type of things. And this is something that this man practiced. We can also assume from these demonstrations and maybe even Simon's own words of what he said 
that he in fact maybe believed that his powers are from God or maybe he even said something that sounded like that. Verse 11 tells us, they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. This has been happening for quite some time. And as we're about to see, it's been happening for quite some time until Philip shows up. Look at verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Here we see the climactic shift. Something changes. They've heard the gospel presented by Philip and they are changed. The good news of the gospel is preached and men and women are baptized for their belief in Jesus Christ. The good news of the kingdom And the name of Jesus Christ took their amazement of the magical, mystical arts that Simon performed, and it made it nothing compared to the good news of the gospel. So think about that in regard to our lost family, friends, neighbors, coworkers who are focused on X, Y, and Z and want nothing to do with the gospel right now. When we show them the truth and the reality of the gospel and what God has done and how it truly is good news, that alone is far more, far more beautiful and appealing than anything else in this world that can offer. Verse 13 tells us that even Simon himself believed and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now we see here what appears, I'm going to say appears, what appears to be a salvation experience for Simon. You see, the verse says that he believed and that he was baptized and that he continued with Philip. And it says in seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. I say appears from what we see in the passages that follow. Look at verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. They hear what's going on in Samaria. You gotta, you gotta believe with the, the, the past history with Samaria and the Jews, they're like, wait a minute, what? We gotta send Peter and John, let's go. And so they go. 15 says, who came down, Peter and John, they come down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. So they come for that purpose. 16 through 17, listen clearly. For he had not fallen, talking about the Holy Spirit, had not fallen on them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. The Spirit had not yet fallen on them, although they had been baptized. Now, we can read that, and that may come across to us as confusing, okay? And rightfully so, I would say. Why does Luke, in his writing, remember Luke is the writer of Acts, why does Luke indicate that the Holy Spirit did not immediately come upon the Samaritan believers? You see, there's no specific New Testament teaching that's out there that says that there's a necessity of the apostle having to be present for the Spirit to come down. We know that specifically from back in Acts 2, when Pentecost took place. There was no specific need for that. It came. 
And we do not see it further in Acts outside of maybe a little slight example of what we'll see with the Ephesian believers in Acts 19. So why is that the case? Because as you and I believe, the moment that we confess Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells us. Baptism is extremely important and it is our first sign publicly before the church and anyone else that I identify as a follower of Jesus. But hear me, the baptism is not required for our salvation. The moment we repent of our sin and we confess Jesus as Lord, we are saved. We are justified. And the Holy Spirit of God comes and indwells us. Then we're baptized. So why then here has the Holy Spirit not come upon them? I wondered that to myself and I, and I started looking through some things. And F.F. And Bruce is an amazing biblical scholar. For years, he's had amazing works. And in his commentary, he wrote this, and I thought it was so fitting for what he said. In general, it seems to be assumed that throughout the New Testament, that those who believe and are baptized have also the Spirit of God. In the present instance, some special evidence may have been necessary to assure the Samaritans, so accustomed to being despised as outsiders by the people of Jerusalem, that they were fully incorporated into the new community of the people of God. It was one thing for them to be baptized by a freelance evangelist like Philip, but not until they had been acknowledged and welcomed by the leaders of the Jerusalem church did they experience the signs which confirmed and attested their membership in the spirit-possessed society. What he's saying there, and I think it's a, a thing that we could really chew on and think about, is because of the history that's there, this act of the apostles coming, it's a sign to say, hey, look, despite the past, you need to know you are a part of the family of God. And therefore, we're laying our hands on you and the Holy Spirit is coming upon you. That's beautiful. That's absolutely beautiful. So despite the opposition that comes against the gospel, the gospel will still advance. The gospel will still transform. But here's a reality, I think, for what we see with Simon, but I think also a reality for all of us. The gospel confronts sin. Number four, the gospel confronts sin. Read with me 18 and 19. Now, when Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also so that anyone whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Simon literally witnesses with his own eyes the Holy Spirit of God come upon the Samaritan people after Peter and John lay hands on them and pray over them. And then Simon takes the time to offer them money, basically saying, hey, here's some money. Let me have that power so I can go and do that. Remember what Simon did previously. He used magic, sorcery, fortune telling, all those kind of things. He used that type of thing to woo the people. So he sees this as an opportunity to say, wait a minute, if I've got that power, I can get the attention of others again. Well, Peter, indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God, confronts Simon in his sin. Verse 20 reads, Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought that you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. 
Peter's very blunt and very specific with him to tell him the reality. How dare you even suggest that? Your heart is not right. Your heart is not right with God. Why on earth would you do that? Now look at 22 and 23. After bringing his sin before him, Peter then says, Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. He calls Simon to repentance for his wickedness. And he pray, and tells him to pray to the Lord. And, and prayerfully, if possible, the Lord would forgive him. Peter is declaring to Simon that although he may have believed and was baptized or appeared to be, he was still looking through the worldview of his past. He was still living in the realm of his sin. Most would argue that Simon may not have even been truly regenerated at the time of his apparent belief in baptism. Regarding this confrontation, I'll I'll quote to you one more time something else from F.F. Bruce. He says, It was doubtful in Peter's eyes if Simon had experienced the grace of God in any real sense. Simon interpreted all that he saw and heard in terms of his own standards. But the gospel belonged to a completely new dimension to which he remained a stranger. In this realm, he clearly had neither part nor share. Peter is calling on Simon to truly repent of his sins so that the transformative power of the gospel may be made new to him. You see, repentance is truly a way of fleeing from the life or the sin that you once lived in. I was just having a conversation about this uh, the other night, <clears throat> sitting in, in our bedroom. Adeline was sitting in there watching some, something on the TV and I walked in there and I just laid down with her. I was talking with her. I'm, I'm doing the New City Catechism stuff with her too. And we just got to talking and I, and I said the word repentance. And, and she looked at me and she said, that has something to do with sin. And I said, yes. And we had a great conversation about repentance. And I was, the best way that I could describe to her for repentance, and I would say it before you, is this. You got to think of it as a sense of when you're walking in your sin and you know you need to repent, you're continually moving forward in that sin. Regardless of anything that's around you, you are focused on that sin, you are living in that sin, and you are pursuing that sin. When you come to a point of repentance, it's looking at that and saying, I'm repenting of this, I'm doing a complete 180 degree turn, and I'm fleeing from it as fast as possible. Before we come to faith in Christ and we repent of our sin, we put a halt there, we turn, and we go the opposite direction, living the way in which God has called us to live. Yes, stumbling along the way because we're still sinners, but God's grace and mercy is new every day. He is calling him to a point of repentance. Truly repent. Simon. Verse 24 says, And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Simon doesn't once pray. 
He tells the apostles to pray for him that what they've said would not come about for him. See, there's a difference. Luke, if you will, leaves us with a cliffhanger of sorts for Simon. Simon's asked them this, but the issue that we are left with is that no conclusion is given regarding Simon repenting or not. We are left to wonder what happened with Simon. Simon was fearful of Peter's words. He was fearful of what would happen, but he doesn't repent, at least from what we can see. Maybe he thought that Peter and John's apostolic presence and words would do something more than than what he could possibly do. But the scriptures are clear. First being 1 John 1.9. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Romans 10, 9 through 10, I quoted part of it earlier. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. There must be a repentance that takes place. So we're left to wonder what, what, what happens with Simon. We're left to see that there's nothing written here that shows that he repents. And I, it leads me to think about something. It leads me to think about something that I think has been maybe a common thing through church history. And I tell you now, no one person in our congregation comes to my mind but I have a fear for the American church at large that there are people who are very much like Simon who from time to time, week to week, month to month, year after year are not truly regenerate. They check everything off the list that they're supposed to check off. They maybe come to church and and put on a smile and do whatever they need to do. But they may truly not be regenerate. They have not truly experienced the salvation of God for whatever reason that may be. Do we have a genuine salvation experience with the Lord? Can we say that the Lord has truly redeemed us? I can say yes. I pray that you can say yes. I pray that you watching at home can say yes. But seeing this with Simon, I just felt so compelled to to say that. And if if you feel like you've just been kicking tires and going through the motion year after year, today may be the day of salvation for you. And praise God for that. We will rejoice and celebrate with you. No one will make you feel condemned. Do you truly know the God of the universe that created you and knows every hair on your head, knows every thought that you think, crafted you and made you beautifully, knit you together in your mother's womb? 
Because you have repented of your sin and confessed Christ as Lord and are living for Him. I pray the answer to that is yes. And if the answer to that is yes, I pray that you're looking through the lens of a biblical worldview and you're saying that despite whatever opposition may come, I know what I have. I know that I am redeemed by God Almighty and I have the promise of salvation. And by goodness, I want to make sure that everybody that I love and care for knows this too. It's the part of the reason why we gather now at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings for Life Connect Group. It's part of the reason why we have women after God. It's part of the reason why we have brotherhood. It's part of the reason why, beginning the week after this coming week, we'll have some home groups. So that each person has ample opportunities to be in biblical community. Each person that is a follower of Jesus that says, I want to grow more and be a disciple of Jesus so that I can make the gospel known to my lost family, friends, neighbors, coworkers. Because we see in verse 25, now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. We see that this narrative ends with Peter and John continuing to testify, continuing to teach the people the good news of the gospel. They were doing what they were called to do. And my prayer for all of us is that we are doing what God has called us to do. I'm not talking about your vocation. I'm just talking about the fact of you being a follower of Jesus Christ. And when God gives the opportunities, you are taking advantage of them. Proclaiming the gospel where you can realizing that you are not responsible for their salvation. You're responsible for proclaiming the gospel. I think this passage today does a great job of revealing to us the necessity of the gospel and our necessity to follow God's commands to proclaim it. So as we transition now to this time of singing this concluding song, this closing song, I ask you to take a moment to stop and reflect and to pray and ask God, Lord, what are you saying to me? What are you telling me from this? What are you revealing to me? What are you calling me to do? And I want to challenge you to earnestly ask him that question. And when he reveals it to you, whenever that may be, that you would not give in to fear, But you would say, yes, Lord. Much like we learned last week when Rod preached, we saw Isaiah. And God said, who will do this for me? Isaiah said, here am I. Send me. I pray that's our heart's cry. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.
Father in heaven, Lord, right now I pray and I ask that you would speak. I pray and ask, Lord, that you would make it known to us through the power of the Holy Spirit, maybe through a spoken word by a friend or a a, a church family member, a mentor. Maybe something that we need to hear from you regarding what we're to do next. Father, it could be that maybe, Lord, right now, Lord, you have already made clear through the proclamation of your word what you're calling us to do. God, I pray that we would not put up a deaf ear. I pray that we would not have a hard heart. I pray if our reaction is no, Lord, that you would draw us to our knees in repentance to say yes, Lord. I can't thank you enough, Father, for the beauty of your word. I can't thank you enough, Lord, for the redemption that you have given through Jesus and his shed blood for me on the cross and for each of us who proclaim Christ. You are so good. Thank you, Lord, that while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. Lord, may we not take this and put our notebooks away until next week, put our Bibles on the shelf, Lord, but may we see this as a, an urgent call to say, I'm going to take this book and I'm going to open it daily and I'm going to ask you, Lord, what do you want from me? Then I'm going to walk next door and I'm going to start a conversation with so-and-so. That I'm going to go to that next cubicle despite my fear and openly talk with the person about my relationship with Jesus. Father, whatever it may be, Lord, I pray, God, that you would have your way in us. Have your way in your church, Lord. Because we know, Lord, that you can do far more abundantly than we could ask or think. Lord, we beg you to leave us in awe. We honor you and we bless you. In Jesus' name, amen.